Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel. The Trowel. <laughs> a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> oh no. Local churches. Local churches. Having little to no impact on the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> to the degree to which it impacts the Southern Conve- Baptist Convention, and we're okay. Whatever. You're the Jared Longshore. I'm Jared Longshore. The Jared Longshore. And I approve that message. What's your name? I'm John Smith. (laughs) The battle-hardened Tom Let's go with it. Jared's email address, by the way. Hey, since we're not in hot water yet, let's talk about Article 10 of the Statement on Social Justice and yeah, the Gospel. This will be an easy one. This will be a piece of cake. So if you're interested in this uh, statement, by the way, social, just, social Justice and the Gospel, you can find it at statementonsocialjustice.com. Article 10 is uh, pretty straightforward and clear-cut. Let me just read it, and Jared, you can give us a quick overview and insight into what it means. Okay. We affirm that God created mankind, male and female, and that this divinely determined distinction is good, proper, and to be celebrated. Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and are not subject to change. The curse of sin results in sinful disordered affections that manifest in some people as same-sex attraction. Salvation grants sanctifying power to renounce such dishonorable affections as sinful and to mortify them by the Spirit. We further affirm that God's design for marriage is that one woman and one man live in a one-flesh, covenantal, sexual relationship until separated by death. Those who lack the desire or opportunity for marriage are called to serve God in singleness and chastity. This is as noble a calling as marriage. Mm. So, what's controversial about that? Well, it strikes me that some of the uh, sentences, it's so sad that it needs to be said, right? Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and are not subject to change. But, you know, Jared, we went through this a few years ago with our elders as we were revising our Constitution bylaws here. You remember we we talked about that quite a bit, using almost this very language Mm -hmm. in our Constitution in order to uh, clarify for years to come that this is what it means to be male. This is what it means to be female. I hope that we can be reinvigorated by the craziness that's going on around us. And so we'll be the most reinvigorated people in the world. There you go. (laughs) Reinvigorated to proclaim the glory and majesty of Christ and the goodness of God and the goodness of his ways. Just coming back to what he's revealed to us in the word. We, We were just talking about this the other day that recently has come out in the news that a man has won the gold in women's cycling. A transgendered person who is biologically a male, according to this definition, but who identifies now as a female. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. And not only that, but also uh, there is a champion weightlifter who was born a male who now identifies as a female, won a female weightlifting contest. I can't help but think about Psalm 2, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is so, this is so, 
painfully humorous. You got this woman that won the silver, um, waving, smiling, like nothing strange is going on here. You got a woman that won the bronze, waving, smiling, like nothing strange is going on here. And all of this sexual perversion that's manifesting itself in these things that are now degrading to women. Yeah. On one level, it certainly is uh, something to be laughed at. But on another level, we should be weeping and deeply uh, grieved because not only are we seeing women in these two categories you just mentioned, are they're, they're, they're being taken advantage of. They're not being treated justly by mm-hmm. this uh, new wave of, of societal upheaval. But on the other hand, the, the people who are caught in this, the people who are uh, advocating this and trying to normalize this, uh, we, should, we should have real compassion for them. Because believing what we do from Scripture and thinking that we have been taught by God from Scripture about sexuality, maleness, femaleness, our hearts should be broken for those who are so sexually confused and knowing that their lives are not what they could be, not what they ought to be. This perversion that's going on is reaping some of the nastiest fruit. Um, and it's, it's hard to even deal with. I read, I don't know how long ago it was, about uh, a young boy that uh, is being dressed up in drag like a woman, a young boy. Like, I don't know if the boy was 12 years old. And walk down fashion right. fashion street, and people taking pictures and and promoting this, and the the distortion and the perversion is um, is devastating, and it's right in step with what the Bible says that we do with our sin. We are wanting now to destroy the image of God. We don't. We're in rebellion against God, and therefore now seeking to um, abolish His image and the destruction of male and female. I, and I think that what we're seeing is is a playing out of or, or an illustration of Romans 1 and the kind of judgment that God says comes upon people, that he actually sends upon people by giving them up, giving them over to their wicked passions. And with the, the, the epitome of that is when men exchange the normal use of sexual relationships with women for sexual relationships with men and women exchange their relationships with men for relationships with women. I mean, the Bible calls that the epitome. That is the epitome of this perversion. And we are seeing that today uh, just being advanced at warp speed. Yeah. And we're going to talk about this in the denial, hopefully a little bit, take nothing that um, I'm saying or we're saying is, uh, Oh my goodness, it's so perverse. How could it be so perverse? We understand perversion. We understand sin. We understand um, these disordered affections. But what's so um, troubling about what we see is uh, some in the evangelical world that would want to encourage that kind of perversion. We understand it. We understand how sin has messed us up. But that going down that road is not going to help you. It's not going to lead to your blessing. It's not going to lead to your flourishing It has to be resisted. These uh, disordered loves have to be mortified. The sin has to be put to death. And while upholding the goodness of God's ways and the truth that the blood of Christ forgives us of our sin and then 
sanctifies us, purifies us, that we would um, grow up into uh, godly men if we are men and grow up into godly women if we are women. So there's much to be said. Exactly. And so something like this conference over the summer, this Revoice Conference in St. Louis that has all of the trappings of compassion and all of the trappings of love because they're trying to understand those who uh, are afflicted with or have imbibed in these types of disordered uh, loves. It, it looks loving. It looks kind, but it's not because you're, you will not be loving someone if you let them go on this same path of thinking that it is normal, it is okay, it is acceptable to God to live this way. How much do you have to hate someone to keep them from the truth of God? And I think, sadly, in our day, we, we've mistaken, some some evangelicals seem to be mistaken uh, neighbor love for neighbor nice. Mm. You know, to be loving to you at times might not come across very nice. But if I can be nice to you and it makes you feel good, well, then you can misinterpret that as love. And we've got to be clear on what it means to love someone. You you want what is best for them. You want their flourishing. It's not going to happen in living contrary to what God has revealed. So in that spirit, the denial portion says, we deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept. We also deny that one's sex can be fluid. We reject gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. We further deny that any kind of partnership or union can properly be called marriage other than one man and one woman in lifelong covenant together. We further deny that people should be identified as sexual minorities, which serves as a cultural classification rather than one that honors the image-bearing character of human sexuality as created by God. Again, uh, we know we're going against the current of our culture with this, and we get glimpses of it pretty regularly at the time that we're actually recording this, just a few days ago, uh, the president's administration, the Trump administration's Department of Health and Human Services sent out a memo which says that sex means a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or before birth. And the uproar that we've seen in the last several days uh, we shouldn't be surprised by it, but it has been loud and unrelenting. And there's a group of transgendered people who, call, who identify themselves as transgendered who are now uh, on a campaign saying we will not be erased, you know, will not be uh, delegitimized. Or, and it's sad. These are things that 50 years ago were obvious, unquestioned. And it's only through social constructions that mm. these biological realities have been challenged and overthrown. And for those of us who still believe them uh, to be ridiculed. It's getting hard to uphold God's standard in this area and um, not be a bigot. So surely that's always been challenging to proclaim God's truth in the midst of a lost and dying world. But these things that are developing, one pathway of my thoughts is it's so sad to see uh, people that are caught in this sexual perversion. And you th I think of Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. Mm -hmm. So I hear stories about this little boy I mentioned earlier. I hear stories about uh, perversion going on. And I'm grieving. I'm weeping because 
this is not good for this person. We know it's not. And yet, when you have uh, people come alongside and say, no, no, this is good. No, no, this is good for this person. Um, that's devastating. It is devastating. And whenever that message begins to come from the Christian community, it's, uh, it's devastating and it is undermining to the revelation of God in Christ and the gospel that we are called upon to set before the world and to plead with the world to embrace that they might know God and, and be reconciled to him. So perhaps I'd plead to anyone that by chance is listening to the podcast, somebody gets on here and hears about this. The good news is that in Christ, there is salvation from sin. Jesus came to shed his blood for those who are given to sexual perversion, sexual confusion, all kinds of sexual sin of various kinds. No matter how far someone has gone down that road and been coaxed down that road by various people, uh, those who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven for every last one of their sins, and they are empowered by his grace to grow up into what he has for them, into um, sex the way God has designed it, into manhood and womanhood, no matter how far someone's run in the other direction. Well said. Well, in our second section here, we talk about a book. And today we want to talk about a book with a very long title. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. It's called From Shadow to Substance, The Federal Theology of the English Particular Baptists, 1642 through 1704, by Samuel D. Renahan. Tell me about that book. This is his uh, dissertation, right? Yes. His, I think it's his dad, right, that writes the foreword to it, James mm-hmm. Renahan. And I am not finished with the book, but have so thoroughly enjoyed the book that I wanted to go ahead and talk about it today. It concerns covenant theology, the covenant theology of the particular Baptist, 17th century Baptists, which is seems to be uh, being recovered right now and brought forth again. So many Baptists in the uh, Reformed camp are having these conversations about New Covenant theology, progressive covenantalism, um, the 1689 federalism versus just the kind of the Presbyterian system of covenant theology uh, without infant baptism. And so Renahan comes, lands on the scene with um, some of the best historical analysis of where the 17th century English Baptists really were. So before I dive, I'm going to dive into it a little bit, but you know about this. You, you studied uh, federal theology all the way years and years and years ago. But how has this come about in your understanding of the Baptist conversation about covenant theology? Were most of the Baptists over the past 30 years or so of that Presbyterian uh, system, or were some aware of this uh, 17th century particular Baptist? I I think there were very few aware of it, and what we're seeing today is the fruit of a lot of uh, work that's gone on over the last several decades, and praise God for it. Yeah, when I first began to look into the... um, the roots of federal theology among Baptists, the the current Baptists, people that are my contemporaries, were 
almost uh, to a man following along the Presbyterian approach to covenantalism, but stopping and making good cases for baptism of believers only, not baptism of the children of believers. And I remember reading Ernest Kevin's book, The Grace of Law, which is a very uh, fine treatment of the Puritan understanding of the doctrine of the law. And he only gives a few lines in that book to a, a view of the Mosaic covenant that sees it as neither the covenant of works nor exclusively the covenant of grace. And he says a couple of people held this, but it was a, a minority report. And in my own research, I began to discover more and more people were seeing this as, as pivotal and uh, transitional and a mixed type of covenant. I think that's Owen's language, if I remember. It's a mixed covenant. And it's from that, I think, it's from that kind of stream that more research has been done and light has been gained that has aided in the further uh, recovery of a Baptist federalism that's going on today. Mm -hmm. Now, I've not read Sam's book, so I don't know exactly how he's arguing, but listening to you as you've talked about it, I get that impression. Oh, well, it's wonderful. He is showing that 17th century English Baptists' um, covenant theology is uh, rooted and grounded in the Reformed covenant theology that Mm -hmm. came out of the Reformation. He cites a number of Presbyterians and simply develops their um, their covenantal system. He shows how um, some of those Presbyterians understood the Mosaic Covenant um, not as um, um, an administration of the Covenant of Grace, but some as a republication of the Covenant of Works, some as even a third thing, this um, covenant that is subservient to the covenant of grace and how the Baptists picked up on that confusion that was present within mm-hmm. Presbyterianism and said, well, yes, we, we agree. You're, we're looking at the covenant. We're looking at the Mosaic covenant and having the same kind of thoughts, but you know what? We see that in the Abrahamic covenant as mm-hmm. well. We see the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic as the old covenant, as this um, covenant that was temporal, physical, conditional, and subservient to the covenant of grace. So the old covenant is not the new covenant. The new covenant is not the old covenant. Sam brings in uh, John Owen as well and shows how, uh, though there are some differences with how the uh, 17th century particular Baptists were reasoning, there was also great mm-hmm. unity. And boy, they think Owen's the way to go here. So I am fascinated with this. I feel like the I'm hoping the next decade is full of um, Baptists who will dig into this issue and see this um, 1689 federalism, as it's being called by many, uh, developed so we can understand this has implications not only for baptism, uh, not only for the church, but has all kinds of implications for the way that we read Scripture, the way we think about the Old Testament, and the way we preach So seeing the covenant of grace promised in the old, revealed in the old, uh, inaugurated, established in the new and with the blood of Christ, that that system, I think, is um, something really worth exploring. And Renahan goes a long way to doing that. Wonderful. And uh, can you tell us who the publisher is of the book and what the. It just came out this year, didn't it? Yes, it did. And it's got a, you can find it on Amazon. That's the best spot. Center for Baptist History and Heritage Studies. 
So um, it's not the easiest book to get a hold of, but okay. we exhort Sam Renahan to find a way to make it available to all <laughs> because we desperately uh, need this out there. And when you go on Amazon, be sure to go on Amazon Smile and sign up to support Founders Ministries. It doesn't cost you anything, and you can make your purchases at the same cost that you would normally pay, but a percentage of what you pay will be donated to Founders Ministries. So go buy Sam's book through Amazon Smile. Thanks, Sam. Okay, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, and uh, last time I think we covered the Tenth Commandment, so now we're on number 11. Jared, you mind quoting that for us? Number 11. <laughs> Thou shalt do whatever Jared says to do. Yeah, what we want to do is just talk about the Ten Commandments. As all a whole. Them. Yeah, as a whole. You know, So why should Christians today regard the Ten Commandments, and how should we regard them? We've worked our way through each one of them, but as a whole. I would contend that Christians should regard them because they are a summary of the eternal moral law of God, which is good, which God requires uh, of all of his created beings. So a summary, that means that these words... These ten words are not in and of themselves exhaustive, but they summarize what is exhaustive. That's right. I don't get to punch you in the face and then say, not murdering you, I'm clear. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they're a summary. Okay, and they're a transcript of God's character, I would say. These are not arbitrary rules. These are rules that come out of the very nature of God. So do you teach your kids the Ten Commandments? I do. You want them to know God's law? I do. So what function do you hope these commandments will serve in the life of your children? I'd say there's a number of functions. I hope that they reveal the character of God. They uh, help them to know who God is and what he requires of them as image bearers. I hope that as they hear those commandments they see their complete inability to keep them and that they fall short again and again because of the sin that dwells within them. I want them to be exposed in that way so that they might flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we teach them and they fall short, we have an opportunity every time to talk about the one and the only one who has upheld these commandments, who has obeyed them perfectly. So the confession talks about uh, three uses of the law. One is to reveal sin and be a means of conviction of sin. A second is to restrain sin because we realize that these commandments come from God and therefore carry punishments and threats with them. And then the third is as a rule of life for Christians. So once we become Christians, it's not that we no longer have any concern for what God has commanded, but rather we look at those commands as the revelation of God's will. You want to know what God wants, look at what he has commanded and seek to live in accordance with those commandments. Not so that you can become right with God by keeping his commandments. That's impossible. No sinner has ever been made right with God by keeping his commandments. No one can do so. But because you have been made right with God, 
and you have you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have a Savior who perfectly fulfilled those commandments, you seek to become Christ-like in fulfilling those commandments yourself. Mm. You talk about restraining sin. You preach the law of God in order to restrain sin. And we certainly live in what appears to be increasingly sinful times. Uh, in Epoch, I still have great hope. Right? I believe that... Um, when Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, he meant it. And so that I'm anticipating things are going to be on the upswing. But we definitely live in a moment now where there's um, great evil. We seem to be kind of on the downslide. Do you think that there's a relationship between that and the church failing to preach God's law? Oh, I do. Definitely. I, I think in multiple ways. Uh, you know, as Machen said, I believe we mentioned that one other time, that anytime there's a uh, a lack of emphasis on the law, forgetting of the law, then, then all kinds of legalism emerges, and then all kind of disregard for the true law emerges. So yeah, I think the church has not done its job in proclaiming what God requires, and that we should do so, and as we do so, then that will help us to live more lawful lives as God's people. We won't just say, oh, I've got Jesus, so because I've got Jesus, whatever feels right, I can do it. Uh, we will say, because I've got Jesus, I want to see what Jesus loves. What did Jesus do? What did he magnify? And I want to live that way. And as we live that way, we become a testimony of the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. And we point toward what it means to have God's will done on earth as it's being done in heaven. Yeah. There's an intricate connection between this third segment of our podcast and the first segment of our podcast where we've been talking about the statement on social justice and the gospel. You, the reason we've got confusion about justice is because we've got confusion about law. It's right. not only confusion about law, but um, that's right there at the core of it. I just happen to have the Geneva Confession of Faith of 1536 here. Is that what's sticking out of your shirt? That's just, I'm going to pull it out. This is actually the original. Um, (laughs) Let me read to you just a brief paragraph. It says, because there is one only Lord and master who has dominion over our consciences. And because his will is the only principle of all justice, we confess all our life ought to be ruled in accordance with the commandments of his holy law in which is contained all perfection of justice, and that we ought to have no other rule of good and just living, nor invent other good works to supplement it than those which are there contained as follows, Exodus 20, I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee, etc., and so on. That's good. Fascinating (laughs) to see this. We're not making this up ourselves here about uh, God's law is our standard. And if we are to live justly, then we need, by God's grace, to live in accordance with God's law. We've talked about uh, rendering to each person what is due him. Well, what is due him is this obedience to the Ten Commandments. It's it's due me that someone not murder me. It's due me that somebody not come and take my stuff. And if we can have that before us. Uh, we're going to be able to live well. Yeah. That's an excellent point, and also what was said in that statement that you read, that good works are determined by what God says is good. 
so often people can get sideways in this, thinking they're doing something good that in reality is contrary to God's commandments. And when that happens, uh, it's disastrous. Perhaps we close with a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in eternity, as we're glorified, uh, we will know that there has only been one who has perfectly obeyed these Ten Commandments. Jesus Christ has done every last one of them. He has upheld the law. He's fulfilled it for us. And so when we go to sleep at night and we think, I'm not glorified yet, I can still see all sorts of ways that I fell short in trying to keep these Ten Commandments today, just one day, and I've fallen short. We ought to turn our thoughts to Christ and remember that He's the one who has been successful. He's the one who's done it. And uh, in Him, uh, we... Uh, have righteousness. Yeah. That's good. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Haskell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from The Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.